Hello and welcome to the Narrative Matters podcast, where we hear stories about experiences with the healthcare system and the people in it that highlight the important policy issues of today. I'm Jessica Bylander. Today I'm talking to Louise Aronson and Ashwin Kotwal. Aronson is a professor of medicine in the Division of Geriatrics at the University of California, San Francisco. She's the author of Elderhood, Redefining Aging, Transforming Medicine, and Reimagining Life, and History of the Present Illness, Stories. Coatwell is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Geriatrics at the University of California, San Francisco. Together, they wrote the December 2022 Narrative Matters essay, which focuses on older Americans' experiences of the COVID-19 pandemic, including social isolation and loneliness, but also generosity and resilience. The essay is part of the Age-Friendly Health series at Health Affairs, which features research as well as narrative. Louise and Ashwin, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, We've heard quite a bit about social isolation in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, though perhaps the conversation has been more focused on the detrimental effects on children when they couldn't attend school in person. And your piece draws closer attention to the effects of isolation and loneliness among older Americans. Um, So were these factors not really considered part of the physician's job to address and consider before the pandemic? And how has that changed? Yeah, the pandemic has really put a spotlight on on these factors. Um, We often think about social determinants of health and loneliness and social isolation are among the most common of the social determinants of health um, that have been amplified during the pandemic. Um, As you mentioned, we think We've thought a lot about the impacts among children, younger adults, which have been profound. Um, and I think it's important to also consider older adults and how they've responded to these restrictions at a really critical time in their life. Um, and as we'll share with you all, um, some of the stories are really challenging. Um, you know, a, a lot of suffering and um, losing out on on those critical periods of time where they could spend time with their family, travel, enjoy retirement. We also have seen a lot of resilience uh, and a lot of giving back among um, older members of our community uh, to the rest uh, of their communities. Mm -hmm. I think for clinicians, it's pretty interesting, but even pre-pandemic, because of the work of Ashwin and others, um, I started putting in my intake form in clinic questions about social isolation and loneliness uh, because it becomes increasingly likely as you move into your later decades, your parents are dead, maybe your siblings, your partner, your friends. So even if you were a very social person, you might end up isolated or lonely. Uh, And we know that has huge adverse health consequences. We measure little things like the amount of blood pressure elevation or cholesterol, which, you know, non-geriatricians think, well, that's critical. And we know it's important. But in many instances, its impact on health is less than that of social isolation and loneliness. But our medical system has such a bias towards the medical and measurable. Um, So we really appreciate health affairs amplifying this topic. Um, So maybe more people will pay attention to it. Yeah. And and Ashwin, as you mentioned, another thing that struck me about the essay is the diversity of experiences that older Americans had during during the lockdowns and other restrictions of the pandemic, particularly in the earlier days. Um, so some suffered very much from loneliness, but others thrived in a way, you know, maybe enjoying time to themselves, time to read more or discovering resilience that they didn't know they had. Um, 
So why is it so important to consider and study these various experiences, you know, versus kind of putting everything in one box um, going forward? Yeah. Uh, and I welcome Louise's thoughts on this, too, um, as I've learned just a ton from her and, and her book, Elderhood. Uh, you know, I, I think we often um, have stereotypes and um I think ageism is really prevalent in our society, unfortunately. And so we think about um, older adults often as victims, uh, as not having agency and being able to um, manage some of the stresses that they um, experience. And, you know, instead, what we want to show is that there are really diverse experiences um, as people um, grow older. And uh, that these experiences can really teach us all about how to manage um, stressors. And, you know, in particular, we saw many people who drew on earlier life experiences of managing stress um, to help them get through the pandemic, that they kind of knew that there um, would be an, uh, an end in sight uh, and, and that would help them. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of experiences here that we, um, that we can learn from uh, in terms of the older community. Yeah, and it's sort of great to flip the narrative because we always hear about vulnerable elders, you know, and people think about institutionalized elders, which are, you know, fewer than 5%. And all the others are just living their lives in the community. And it turns out having decades more experience at being resilient gives you more tools in your toolbox and makes you more resilient. Um, so we heard about the people suffering most. Um, but in fact, the generation's least resilience were the younger ones and the people in their 20s that just didn't have the skill sets. And yet we don't really draw on those older adults to help teach them skills that have held them in good stead over decades and that are actually shown internationally in cross-cultural studies. Part of why happiness goes up and anxiety goes down after age 60 is that resilience and that ability to prioritize and adapt um, that we all develop if we get to live that long. So it, it's kind of um, it's kind of great, and we need to pay attention to those who are less resilient as well. Thank you. Yeah, that's a lot of food for thought in the essay. Um, and thanks again for joining us today. Now here are Louise Aronson and Ashwin Kotwal reading their essay, Understanding Pandemic Experiences Among America's Elders. On a Saturday in late February 2020, Washington state announced the first large U.S. COVID-19 outbreak, which, surprising no one who had been following the pandemic in other countries, occurred in a skilled nursing facility. Although the media and public expressed horror at the stretchers and body bags being wheeled out of the care home, many also accepted such outcomes as inevitable. Well, of course, the thinking was, they were so old, so frail so ill. In the weeks that followed, we awaited our country's official response with equal parts dread and hope. As geriatricians, we had closely followed the stories about infected old people in China locked in their homes and elderly Spaniards abandoned to die in care facilities. We wanted the United States to do better, to be better. When the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention advised older adults especially to stock up on food and for everyone to adopt social distancing practices to protect the vulnerable elderly. We hoped that such measures signaled recognition that a potentially preventable virus was killing old people and that old people were worth helping. 
in the U.S., for those of us thousands of miles from the growing outbreaks in large East Coast cities, the early weeks of lockdown engendered a mix of exhilaration and trepidation. Among the privileged, social distancing became essentially a series of snow days, a chance to staycation with family, read, sleep, stream, and exercise. Others went to work, producing food and health care, risking their lives by choice, necessity, or both. The least fortunate wondered how long their money and food would last before they fell into homelessness, hunger, and despair. From the start, there were people who questioned social distancing. Some young people labeled the virus boomer remover as if it were a tool of social justice, and some more advantaged old people flouted the recommended precautions, going about their lives as if nothing had changed. What we have learned in the years of caring for patients in our geriatrics and palliative care clinics during the pandemic is that the experience of older adults during the COVID-19 pandemic, as during the decades of old age itself, have not been homogenous. Yet for many, particularly for certain populations, people who entered the pandemic socially isolated, those with a history of depression and anxiety, and residents of nursing homes, the nature and duration of pandemic isolation made already difficult situations much worse. Little to do. Julia Curtis was one of those people. The initial pandemic lockdown was simultaneously a source of animated conversation and the event that stripped her life of its few satisfying elements. Although she was 78 years old, during her medical appointment, she never failed to mention her difficult relationship with her long dead immigrant mother, the back surgery that left her in chronic pain or her lost career. She had never married and counted as her closest friend, the man who ran the small local community center but her pre-pandemic life had had an acceptable rhythm of activities and social interactions. At first, COVID-19 news kept her busy. She was seeing and learning so many new things, but by May, her fascination waned. Spending day after long day alone in her tiny apartment took its toll. Sometimes she went out for walks, but as a high-risk person, that made her nervous. She wondered whether a passing stranger's breath could kill her. Her chronic pain worsened in the absence of distractions and pleasures. As the months passed, she found herself tiring more easily. She began staying in bed later and later in the mornings. After all, it didn't matter when she got up or whether she got dressed. She wondered what the point of her life was when all days were the same, all by herself with little to do and nothing to look forward to. She wondered whether her doctor could call every week. That would really help, she said. By the summer of 2020, we increasingly saw patients similar to Julia, but we also saw surprising numbers of old people who had adapted, taking walks at times of day when streets were mostly empty, calling long lost or far away friends, forging new relationships with neighbors and acquaintances, and learning Zoom or FaceTime. By autumn, the medical literature corroborated our patients' varied and not always negative experiences. Whereas the first pandemic articles were perspective pieces warning of grave harms from lockdowns, studies, including a study of older San Franciscans conducted by one of us, began to suggest that most older adults were resilient, more resilient, in fact, than younger generations, 
although a minority, already isolated and mentally or physically ill, were in trouble. We saw this too in other parts of our jobs. In nursing homes and assisted living facilities, some sat alone in their rooms weeping or wondering that why they were being treated like prisoners. In continuing care retirement communities, anyone who could afford to had moved out. In board and care facilities, particularly those in low-income neighborhoods where residents were more often people of color and with disabilities or mental illness, life often went on as usual because the owners lacked the resources, both fiscal and technological, to access and fully implement the steady stream of guidance from local, state, and federal officials. Around this time, one of our patients, Al Cunningham, was being seen over video for his first palliative care consultation. After 10 years of treatment, Al's prostate cancer was no longer responsive to treatment. The cancer had spread to his hips, shoulder, and spine. He was hoping for one more year of life. And now he was spending that final year isolating in his assisted living facility away from his children and friends, rarely leaving his room. The inactivity made his hip and back pain worse and his joints stiff. Yet he approached the public health guidelines with a serenity that his prior years in a Buddhist monastery made possible. I've meditated, he explained with a sanguine smile when asked how he passed the time. This isn't so different from my life in the monastery. I think I have a 50-50 chance of living if I get the virus, so I'm trying to live in the moment. He sighed, then continued. I feel grateful to be older right now. I've gone through a lot. I really worry about younger people. He was concerned that his children could lose their jobs, and he'd noticed mounting stress in younger generations. If remaining in his apartment might help another person avoid the deadly spread of the virus, he was happy to do it, even if that meant spending the last year of his life in isolation. Extraordinary times called for extraordinary sacrifices, and he was ready to answer the call. Increasingly, we weren't so sure that one segment of the population should be required to make these sacrifices especially when other segments seemed reluctant to make even minor changes to their lives. In the earliest months of the pandemic, we had supported the lockdown. Despite the significant morbidity and mortality from social isolation and loneliness in older adults, lockdown seemed a necessary temporary measure for the greater good. But as weeks became months and new normals were established for school, work, and life, we began to question the assumptions made by public health and infectious disease experts about social distancing. Focused on COVID-19 alone, they seemed to only see the benefits disregarding both established and emerging data about harms. In the geriatrics community, professional alarm bells told progressively louder especially for certain subgroups of elders, those in facilities, those whose function and well-being had depended on now-closed day programs, those unable to cross the digital divide, the oldest old. Because socioeconomic advantages and disadvantages accrue over long lives, isolation's harms 
like those of COVID-19 itself, were unevenly distributed across racial and ethnic groups. Patients too poor or old to access video visits were given shorter and clinically much less useful phone conversations instead. Others became gravely ill or died from conditions, including heart attacks, wounds, and cancers that might have been treated if they had access to services that remained closed or suspended. At every clinic session, we talk to people about the rapid acceleration in their physical, mental, or cognitive decline. Sure, isolation kept people uninfected, but at what cost? In the summer of 2021, one of our patients, Anthony Ocampo, moved to a nursing home. After years of keeping him at home with his dementia, his family found themselves unable to cope with the behavioral changes that began with social distancing. Not long after his move, on Tony's 75th birthday, his son and friend organized a picnic and family get-together. At a time when the pandemic had begun to feel over to many across the country, restrictions remained in full force for most nursing home residents. Because of indoor visitation restrictions, Tony's family was unable to go to his room or hold the event in the facility. Tony didn't understand why they wouldn't come in. Hurt and confused, he refused to leave the building and join them outside. For the next four days, triggered and upset, he stopped eating and refused medications. He became dehydrated and delirious and was hospitalized. I'm in a constant state of sorrow thinking about my father, his son told us at the time. I know the nursing home staff is trying their best, but what started off as such a happy occasion turned into him needing to be hospitalized. In the weeks after his hospital stay, Tony became bedbound. And later that year, when visitor restrictions eased to allow for one hour indoor daily visits, Tony's family never missed a day, but the visits came too late for him to fully appreciate them. And they were still too short to allow his family to provide the sort of care known to improve eating and well-being among nursing home residents. Before the pandemic, it was uncommon for clinicians to address loneliness, a subjective, unwelcome feeling of lack of social connections, or social isolation, the objective state of having minimal social contacts. Despite decades of research linking these conditions to adverse health outcomes and premature mortality, those issues were perceived as being outside the scope of medicine, time-consuming, and not clearly addressable at least not with medications or procedures. Now clinicians are on the front lines of witnessing the subacute and chronic health effects of long-term pandemic-related loneliness, isolation, and lack of access to critical health services. Although the degree of impact varies from person to person, negative consequences are apparent in a majority of older adults, even the most resilient. They range from cancers found too late to long-planned post-retirement trips that people are no longer healthy enough to take. 
As the pandemic neared its second anniversary in early 2022, public health leaders at the local, state, and federal levels debated how to mitigate the damage to children and teens without apparent recognition that different but equally important questions needed to be asked about people at the other end of the human lifespan. How long could or should normal activities be put on hold by people in their last months, years, or decades of life? What might be the long-term impact of prolonged isolation and reduced activity on mental and physical health, on families and workplaces, on social programs and healthcare? What windows of opportunity might close for individuals and society to reap the benefits of the longevity dividend? What did all this mean for the future of aging in America? It seemed likely that there weren't single answers to these questions. People's experiences of the pandemic, as of old age itself, varied widely from person to person, place to place, and year to year. From our perspective, it is time to end any ongoing isolation measures that remain for community day programs, assisted living facilities, and nursing homes. This includes rescinding pandemic policies where that has not already been done, as well as making sure that programming, dining, and visitation are aligned with the most current policies, something that is not happening in some facilities that are still enforcing outdated restrictions. We know now, for example, that ventilation and masking provide considerable protection with far fewer downsides than social isolation. We also know that facilities with better access to personal protective equipment, testing, technology, and expert advice did better than ones without those supports. Finally, why not offer nursing home residents the same choices that most of the rest of us had by creating spaces where people can prioritize safety or relatively normal living according to their preferences and life expectancy? Clearly, this is an opportunity for ethics-directed creativity and innovation to ensure that responsible balance is achieved among risk for death, use of resources, and human rights. When the next pandemic strikes, as experts believe it will, we know that collaborative leadership among policymakers, public health leaders, and clinicians is critical to bridging the social medical divide. We offer key considerations for such a time. First, public health and political leaders must recognize the dangers of relying on a single metric of success. For at least the first two and a half years of the pandemic, policy impact was measured solely by the numbers of COVID-19 infections. This hid significant health harms. Collecting broader health metrics reflecting different domains of quality of life, such as functional, behavioral, social, spiritual, and overall health, could guard against perverse incentives towards short-term, single-focus outcomes that may make sense early in a crisis, but cause harms to accumulate when left in place too long. Similarly, the impact of pandemic social restrictions should be studied across settings, including beyond long-term care settings where fewer than 5% of older adults reside. Second, regulations should be passed that ensure that future crises allow only limited periods of isolation 
and do not permanently disrupt services that maintain health and community living. Third, health systems should partner with social care organizations to sustain the innovative interventions developed for isolated older adults during the pandemic, such as peer support programs, telephone friendship lines, and technology skill development classes. At this time, such local programs, particularly in disadvantaged communities, are underfunded and unrecognized or undervalued by health systems. Fourth, federal and state laws must be passed that recognize the essential support provided by family caregivers, eliminating barriers to visitation for them in long-term care settings. In the pandemic, paid caregivers were allowed access to residents, whereas family members who often assist with basic care needs and provide meaningful social support were kept out. Finally, future policies applied to older adults must consider the unique realities and priorities of later life. Many older adults, particularly those classified as at highest risk during the COVID-19 pandemic, would not have chosen to sacrifice their quality of life to lengthen their lives. But unlike younger and middle-aged adults who were allowed to disregard masking and isolation if they wanted to, vulnerable older people were stripped of agency over their options, actions, and lives. As geriatrician Joanne Lynn quipped about nursing home residents, they were incarcerated without committing a crime and without judicial review. We must do a better job of including the voices and priorities of elders generally, and those of diverse elders especially, into public health and health policy. Among our older patients, there is no single narrative of their experience of the pandemic. At a clinic visit in late spring of 2022, Alice Yu lowered her voice as if revealing a shameful secret. Honestly, she said, these pandemic years have been one of the best times of my life. My friends are great, but it was such a relief not to have to make plans. I never realized how much that took out of me. I started walking more, reading more, cooking more. I learned to play the ukulele. She smiled, then added, I found video exercise classes that I actually like doing. I think maybe I've never been this healthy. Her blood pressure and laboratory tests showed that she was right. She came off two medicines. Her biggest concern at that clinic was how to handle the growing requests from friends to see them. That's stressing me out, she said. I went from the post office where I talked to people all day long to a retirement with too many social activities. Twelve years later, finally, my life is just right, spending most of my time alone. But you can't say that to people, can you? As people age, their experiences of aging and priorities increasingly diverge. This was abundantly evident in reviewing the literature and stories of loneliness and social isolation among older adults during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's also why a core principle of geriatrics is taking an individualized approach to patient care. In clinical practice, our care plans incorporate patients' values, health, and functional status life expectancy estimates, and the level of uncertainty that people are willing to tolerate. Complexity is par for the course. The variability of aging means that situations and preferences often change, and preferences might not always match reality.
As a result, a key corollary to the individualized approach principle is to regularly revisit benefits and harms, goals and priorities. Public health, by definition, does not attend to individuals, but to populations and communities. Yet public health can, and given our aging population must, incorporate geriatrics and gerontology knowledge and approaches into its structures, training, and policies. If going forward, they hope to avoid the harms, including protracted social isolation, unnecessarily imposed on older Americans during the COVID-19 pandemic. This wouldn't be a special dispensation, but a critical step towards achieving health equity across the human lifespan. It is time to bring the same rigor and expertise to issues affecting older people as is already brought to public health for people of other ages. To be sure, people of all ages were both helped and harmed by policies during the COVID-19 pandemic. Circumstances were unprecedented and overwhelming. The only way to mitigate those harms now is to take steps to prioritize public health policies that are more evidence-based and less traumatic, both for older adults and for everyone else. That was Louise Aronson and Ashwin Kotwal reading their essay, Understanding Pandemic Experiences Among America's Elders. Thanks for listening to the Health Affairs Narrative Matters podcast. If you like this episode, tell a friend and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you.